0: Hello and welcome to Natasha Explains It All. Today we have a very special episode because we have a guest with us, Jennifer Esteen, who is a candidate for Alameda County Supervisor District 4 in the upcoming March 5th election. For Alameda County voters, you should have already received your mail-in ballot in the mail. So voting has begun and you can vote now through March 5th. Now the March 5th election, which is what we're going to be talking about today, is a primary election with the general election in November, but for supervisor positions. Whoever wins over 50% of the vote wins the election outright. So the March 5th election is the election for this race. And hopefully today's conversation will help District 4 voters make a more informed choice. Now, before we dive into questions, just a disclosure for my listeners, Um, I have donated to Jennifer's campaign, and I am a volunteer with the campaign. So with that, let's jump in. Jennifer Estine, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Natasha. I'm excited to be here and very excited to share more about myself and this upcoming election. It couldn't be more urgent.
0: Well, let's talk about this urgent election then um, with a couple of just kind of grounding things for listeners who may not have heard about the race or may only, you know, have heard very superficially about it. The, this, you are running for to be a supervisor on the Alameda County Board of Supervisors. What does the Board of Supervisors do?
1: The Board of Supervisors does quite a few things. Um, for people like me who live in the unincorporated area of Alameda County which basically means that we are towns that don't have city structures we don't have a city council or a mayor the county body is our local governing authority so the the person who is elected to be our supervisor for the county is also considered our mayor and you know a de facto mayor but for everyone else county at large The county supervisors manage um, public health and mental health services, housing and homelessness services, which is a huge concern in California, especially in Alameda County, where we have more than 10,000 people who are sleeping on the streets any night. Um, They also are in charge of social services, which encompasses everything from like, uh, child protective services or adult protective services to mental health services that help with uh, continuation schools and students who have special education needs, and also the entire criminal legal system locally for our county, which means the sheriff budget, the district attorney budget, the public defender budget, as well as the county jails budget and oversight of all of those bodies. So the County Board of Supervisors really has a wide scope And one of the things that encouraged me about this body as a potential new job is that I am a public health nurse and a psychiatric registered nurse. So the control of mental health and public health feels like it's perfect for my area of expertise.
0: Thanks, Jennifer. And you've touched on a lot of things I'm hoping to get into in this interview So including some of the key issues that are top of mind for Alameda County residents, including criminal justice, public safety, housing and homelessness, which I hope to get into a little bit later. You also mentioned that um, this race includes um, many of the unincorporated areas of Alameda County. And that was really going into my next question that there are the board the Alameda County is divided into five districts. Each of those five districts is represented by a supervisor. So there are five supervisors. You are running for supervisor for District 4. The current incumbent is someone named Nate Miley, who's been in that position for 24 years. For those who are don't know if they're in District 4, don't know where District 4 is. Where is district four? What does it encompass in Alameda County?
1: Well, that's a really great question. So the county is rather large. In the county overall, we have 1.6 million residents. And the county body, this board of supervisors, only has five representatives. So the district that I'm in encompasses 400,000 people. And uh, the way that that's split up geographically is that it covers the city of Oakland in lots of areas. It's about a third of Oakland, but for the district, it's about half of the residents. So the areas of Oakland include Montclair in the hills, also the area around the Oakland Zoo and everything uh, that is west. I wanna say north all the time, but everything above Highway 13 and 580 going to the San Leandro border. And then when you get below Highway 13 and 580, it's the Laurel District, It's uh, the area on both sides of Mills College. It's Maxwell Park and the Havens Court area and then deep East Oakland, all the way again to the San Leandro border. Then you skip over San Leandro and go, the district continues in the unincorporated community. So where I live, Ashland, the neighboring town, Cherryland, Fairview, uh, Hillcrest Knolls, Castro Valley, and then also the city of Pleasanton. And we have out of those 400,000 residents, 175,000 registered voters.
0: All right. Well, if you are one of those registered voters, hopefully this is going to help you in making an informed decision between now and March 5th. So jumping into more about your background, Jennifer, and um, what has brought you to the race, you mentioned that you are a psychiatric nurse. And I, I want to get into the, you know, specific issues that seem to be top of mind for Alameda County residents, but it seems interesting to me that as a psychiatric nurse, it seems that it might be at the intersection of three of the key issues facing Alameda County, which would be mental health um, concerns, housing issues, and also criminal justice, crime, public safety, and so can you talk a little bit more about what it's like to be a psychiatric nurse, how that is, has informed your decision to run, and why that makes you qualified to be a county supervisor?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think the, my experience of is, is, uh, being a psychiatric registered nurse is incredibly important, but is not the only relevant experience. So I've been a psych nurse for 14 years, The first five years of my career, I started working in the San Francisco General Hospital Psychiatric Emergency Room. And that was really where I was able to kind of observe and experience the deficiencies in our public health system and our mental health system. Um, But my experience expanded from where I work in San Francisco also into Alameda County because for the last three years, I've been serving on the Alameda Health System Board. And the the Alameda Health System governs our four county hospitals here in Alameda County, as well as 318 nursing home beds and several clinics. and has a $1.4 billion budget of which I had fiduciary responsibility. And I've served in several capacities on the board during my tenure as the vice president, most recently as the uh, chair of the finance committee, working side by side with the CEO on a regular basis and also as the secretary treasurer of the board. So all those different experiences really have helped to prepare me. In addition, I've been a council member in our unincorporated community for four years and the incumbent that I'm actually challenging for this seat appointed me into both the council seat four years ago, as well as to the Alameda Health System Board. And so it is all of those experiences of direct patient care, in a place where you know, in the psychiatric emergency room, where every person who comes in typically is brought in by police wearing handcuffs, and that is their uh, introduction into the healthcare system, which feels pretty absurd. Because for people who are seeking medical care, you don't have to go through the police to get access. So you know, I think some of some of that is really uh, problematic. But in addition. of the people who come into psych emergency, and this doesn't matter if you're in San Francisco or in Alameda County, 50% of the people who come in, come again. They're repeat customers. And the reason that we see these people coming again is because they have a permanent need for care. You know, similar to like if you have diabetes or if you have a skin condition, or if you have hypertension, you need ongoing medical care and medication. You need ongoing treatment and people come back to the emergency room again and again, because the community-based medical care, their psychiatric needs are not met. And the statistic for how those needs are not met, specifically in Alameda County, are that if you try to access care today by either calling the access hotline, the 800 number, or by walking into a mental health clinic, they're gonna put you on a wait list for six to eight months. And if you wanna get care, like primary care, medical care, you're going to get in a list behind 10,000 people. So we really have a lot of folks who have needs, but the system is not adequately serving them.
0: There is a lot of outstanding public health need that is not being addressed by current systems in Alameda County. And one of the other points as to why we know that's the case is Alameda County currently... Um, is dealing with a lawsuit and potential settlement with Disability Rights California and other organizations regarding the lack of mental health services in the county. So could you speak to what solutions you would propose to, you know, eliminating this wait list to ensuring that people are receiving care in the community? And so they're not ending up, um, you know, cycling in and out of the county jail, for example?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing that we need to do is shift our priorities. Right now, with the current leadership, there is a strong, um, years long, many, many years long, dedication to providing mental health services in the jail and not in the community. So we've seen an increase in funding year over year into jail-based services. And it's no surprise that the lawsuit you mentioned was uh, also something that triggered a Department of Justice inquiry and investigation. And a couple years ago, the Department of Justice cited our jail for not providing people's uh, constitutionally protected care that they're supposed to receive. The Department of Justice also said that our jail was functioning so poorly when it came to providing care that they are now under a consent decree, a federal consent decree. And there was a huge settlement that the county negotiated with the family of a person who did not receive adequate care. And this class action settlement, the county decided, um, because the federal government also determined that the most mental health care being provided in all of Alameda County was being provided in the jail. The county said, Well, you know what, we're gonna do is try to enhance the care that is provided in the jail, continuing to ignore the fact that people do not stay in jail forever. Jail is temporary, it is not prison, it is not for life. When people go to jail, they come back to the community very quickly. And, you know, our jail is interesting. We take in 25,000 people every single year and just about half of them, 12,000 people, stay in the jail for less than seven days every year. So we're spending half of the resources uh, putting people into jail, but they only stay for a week or less. That means that those 12,000 people potentially still need behavioral health care. But because all of the county resources are being redoubled and all the the focus is going into what we're providing in the jail, we continue to neglect and underfund the need in the community. And we also were neglecting and, and not funding the need for people who were once in the jail, you know, it, but in addition to that, I like, I don't want to ignore the part about how we can avoid jail in the first place, because so often um, what we see is that people have contact, With law enforcement because of issues that typically are not criminal. And I'll give an example about this. Like statistically, in Oakland, the 911 dispatch system just released an audit, a report. So I'm not making these numbers up. These are the official numbers. 66% of the 911 calls that go into police dispatch in Oakland are non emergent, non violent, and if they had other personnel to offer, those calls could be responded to people who were not police because there are issues surrounding uh, surrounding poverty, homelessness, and mental health needs. So if we had the appropriate workforce and the appropriate services in the community, two-thirds of the people who currently have police contact now could actually be served in the community. That is a huge proportion of our resources regarding personnel, regarding, you know, like police cars, taking people to jail, regarding police time, that could be devoted by actually serving people. And I think, so we need to shift the way that we decide to allocate resources and spend money. Also, we need to make sure that we have a pipeline of providers that the county is encouraging to come in and do this work. And I think there's a couple ways that we can get there. There's more than a couple ways, but some low hanging fruit. We could get there Um, The in the state of California, there's a a Medi-Cal reimbursement structure that already exists for bringing community health workers, which means somebody who did not have to go to grad school, who did not have to spend, you know, two or three years um, studying, but also someone who might be a person with lived experience. A peer of sorts who could then provide uh, responsiveness to people in the community as a trusted messenger. And the county would never have to pay for that position because Medi Cal reimburses for it. We could institute a robust community health worker response program right now, even if it was something that was supplemental to what we're currently doing. It doesn't have to be a full replacement. You know, we can phase things in but right now we're not doing that and it's something that would cost us nothing so i think you know there there are lots of ways that we can get there another way that i'd like to get there um i i consider housing to be a necessity and i think we get to housing um in some ways by offering people supports and the reason that the housing supports have something to do with this mental health service is because people are being priced out of our bay area they're being priced out of alameda county i mean i personally was priced out of oakland it was the first place i lived when i moved to the bay in the year 2003 and i haven't been able to get back but the county can offer subsidies short-term subsidies that help people uh, who want to live here and work here afford to do so and it can be small amounts it can be the difference between we're going to pay your deposit on your rent or we're going to, you know, if you have the, the means, we're going to help you with your down payment assistance. Um, and that can help encourage people to move here, to work here and to stay here and be dedicated members of the community. And when you have that kind of support and supplement for people's employment, it can become a recruitment and retention bonus. That actually helps to encourage a skilled workforce to be here. But What we're seeing instead is a lot of out-migration. You know, last year was the first year that California had more people leave the state than moved into the state. And in Alameda County, we had a great number of people who were college graduates, who were educated folks, leave and go elsewhere. And I think we have to work really hard to reverse that trend.
0: All right, so much in that answer, so I wanna, pick up some of the threads that you mentioned and dive deeper into the potential solutions and your vision for Alameda County. I want to start at the very end and then go back to things that you mentioned earlier. You mentioned the concept of providing housing subsidies as a way of improving affordability in Alameda County. Um, I want to mention something and then ask a question. For listeners who may be unfamiliar with the idea of housing subsidies, or it may seem, you know, outlandish or something like that, you know, Oakland um, has been experimenting with a UBI pilot program. UBI standing for Universal Basic Income, of very small amounts, like five hundred dollars a month, and it's worked very well. And a lot of the money people have been spending on housing to stay housing stable. I know also in San Francisco, there's a couple of programs, both private as well as public, to help um, with um, uh, down payments for homes for public school employees and other types of professionals. And so just just throwing it out there, there are models for some type of housing subsidy to help support the cost of living in expensive areas. Um, Is there anything else that you want to say on that particular idea regarding housing affordability?
1: I think I love that you pointed out the universal basic income pilots that are currently underway. There's so many and they all are being proven to work, <laughs> that you know, when people get uh, these extra monies, that they spend it on necessities, they spend it on food, they spend it on housing. There's more than 100 universal basic income pilots that have been tried all over the country. I think one of the ones that got a lot of press here in California was in Stockton, where a certain segment of the population got 500 bucks. In San Francisco, uh, pregnant women were given $1,000 uh, here in Alameda County, there is a pilot to also give foster youth $1,000 a month uh, to help between their emancipation at age 18 and when they turn 21. All of these programs are providing data that demonstrate that when you give people money, it helps them thrive. And I, you know, I, I don't mean to laugh when I say it, but it feels so obvious one of the things that we're experiencing as a whole in our society is a huge wealth gap and i think you know when when people are when pundits are talking on the news or when opinions are rolling around or or even when the the negative scenarios are being discussed around like the doom loop and i'm making air quotes you can't see it but i'm making air quotes doom loop one of the things that is often not mentioned is the wealth gap that we have this vast inequality and that people are struggling to make ends meet. Last year in Alameda County, the poverty level increased by 9%. That means that people's earnings are at one level, but the cost of living is way up above. And what these subsidy programs can do is close the gap so that people's earnings can kind of meet the true expenses in the world but we we have to support folks and and that's that's what i want to do so thank you for bringing that back
0: absolutely and going back to another thread that you mentioned earlier so in talking about how we would improve mental health and public health services in Alameda County you mentioned that the county has been prioritizing putting dollars and resources into the county jail which is known as Santa Rita rather than in in the community. I want to dig into that a little bit more. A couple of things came to mind around that. One, your point about half of the people going into the jail are coming out within seven days. You know, one of the things that is something I've observed is that you know, people coming out of Santa Rita Jail don't have support as they're leaving. There's like one nonprofit that the county partners with that is sometimes there and can provide people with rides home. But they're only there for limited hours. And the jail releases people at literally all times of the night and day. And it's resulted in some people dying within hours of being released from the jail because they're, they don't have support. Um, which is not good for public safety to be releasing people at all hours without without support, and also, you know, you mentioned um, the county is is been facing multiple lawsuits regarding how poorly the jail is run, and you were making reference to the Babu litigation, which is regarding mental health services in the jail. One of the challenges seems to be. And it's costing taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars. Is is the county deciding to staff up the jail rather than community services? But it's based on population numbers that are not real. Um, the jail, the, it's a, about a four thousand bed jail. The population has been hovering around two thousand for the last several years. But the staffing numbers and therefore the hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars that they're putting towards this are based on um, A Population a jail population that hasn't existed for many many years and as a result They haven't been able to fill those positions so I wanted to provide a little bit of that context and I wanted to um, pick up that thread about the use of resources in the county and see if you had other, um, other examples of programs or models of how we could get more robust community-based mental health services? You mentioned the medi reimbursement program through the state that would allow for Alameda County to hire community health workers. So again, people could receive support in the community rather than either being hospitalized or ending up in jail. Um, are there any others that you would like to share that could help the county put our taxpayer dollars where we're getting actually the most bang for our buck?
1: Yes, absolutely. There's so many programs around the country there, and locally, right here in Oakland, the voters decided that they wanted a program that was designed by the community with lots and lots of community input. Uh, it was called, it is called Macro, and the Macro program is supposed to respond to social needs, to needs of people with mental health issues um, in the moment, instead of calling nine one one to get the police. You call uh, the Mental Health First Hotline, or you call 988 and you get redirected to MACRO instead of 911 and the police dispatch. But what we've seen instead is since MACRO was voted in by by the majority in Oakland, that the program has not actually been fully funded, that its staffing has been in need, and also that the services they've been uh, driven toward to provide are homelessness services, not mental health services. And sometimes the two people people think that homelessness and mental health needs are synonymous, but they're not. Uh, Being homeless is stressful and can lead you to have mental health issues, but the two are not completely equal. And unfortunately, macro has been utilized in a way that is not its highest and best use, but it was designed as a program that could be really, really beneficial to give that alternative response so police can go do their job. And these other people who are better equipped to respond to community needs could also provide that. The other place where we've had a really lovely model is the CAHOOTS program that came out of Colorado. And the CAHOOTS program had really strong numbers showing that they had like zero negative outcomes. Not one person was shot, beaten, or killed when they had these alternative responses. Whereas we know that sometimes when police or other uniformed officers show up, armed people use the equipment that they've been given. And if they've been given guns, people get shot and die. So the CAHOOTS program is a great model. I think MACRO was designed with some CAHOOTS modeling. And you know those are two examples of what we could do. And in this county, what we've seen is that other cities similarly to oakland have tried to create their own programs but they are you know like a drop in the bucket toward the need in livermore they have a couple police officers that operate as their response team in hayward they have like a five person team that kind of rotates monday through friday in fremont they have a different response in uh, pleasanton they have a different response in berkeley they have a different response all these responses the cities are trying to navigate on their own They're disjointed, they're disconnected. Nobody knows if they're seeing the same person on Tuesday that someone in another city saw on uh, the Sunday before. So what the county can do, because the county is the overarching body for our 14 cities and the unincorporated communities, the county can bring people together. The county can bring these agencies into a unified operating system. The county can help to sponsor an electronic health record that we all share For example, the county could also make sure that we have one unified personnel structure, or if it's a certain dispatch that all are operating with the same kind of standards, the county could create so much cohesion if it decided to be a leader in this. But we don't see that. And I think that that is a part of the vision that is missing. That is a part of the willingness to lead that is missing. And that is a part of what leaves us with cities that are replicating and reinventing the wheel over and over and over again and operating in silos where one group isn't utilizing the the best practices and the resources of another group. So what ends up happening is things go slower, responses are not aligned, and nobody knows that they're giving one person multiple service points of touches. Um, So then we don't really identify who's got the greatest need. There's so many issues that we could uh, kind of eliminate if the county did its job of being the adult in the room.
0: So on this point about the role of the board of supervisors providing coordination between the various cities that make up the county, I want to talk about one example of that um, and where, frankly, there has been inaction up till now and get your thoughts on it. So back in 2021, the Board of Supervisors passed a resolution known as the Care First Jail's Last Resolution. For full disclosure, I was someone who uh, promoted that resolution. And the main goal of this resolution is similar to what we've been talking about, to get the county to invest in community-based mental health services so that people are not ending up in jail who have severe mental health needs, so that they're getting the better services in the community and it's much cheaper for taxpayers as a result. And not that much has happened since it was passed in 2021 there has been a task force that's been created, there has been some money set aside, but really in terms of implementation, not much has happened. Um, is um, Is that resolution something that you support and how would you see for it to be implemented?
1: Yeah, well, this has come up many times on the campaign trail where the incumbent talks about how much he supported Care First, Jail Last. And I think that what we've actually seen throughout the 24 years of his tenure are beautiful plans that never get implemented. There has been a violence prevention plan that was actually created in 2005 that was never fully funded, never fully invested in, and basically is a plan that's languishing on a shelf. And I think the Care First, Jail Last, unfortunately, is another plan and resolution that garnered so much input from the community, so many good ideas that, if implemented, if funded, would work wonders for our community. But there is no true dedication to the Care First Jail Last approach because right after that, we saw another decision to put millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, into the jail and not into the community. And that is a, a flaw. You know, it's like when you get up and you say, All I care about is a headline but I don't really care about the nuts and bolts. I don't really care about putting this plan into, into practice. What we do is we kind of satisfy and satiate the community and the organizers in the moment. We give people lots of work to do, but then never take up the implementation of the plan. And I'm really sorry that that is what's happening. And you know, I've talked to people who served on the mental health board and they said the exact same thing happened that they would spend all these hours and weeks and months and years of having these meetings, developing these plans, come to the body, make a presentation to the supervisors, and then nothing would change. Nothing would be invested, nothing would happen. And I think that that is an insult to people's intelligence. It's an insult to people's dedication and time. It harms our community because it also ends up I don't want to say it wastes the time, but every day that we have another opportunity to serve someone and we let that go is a day that someone's family member is suffering. Just last week, there was a person who went to our county jail and within 28 hours, they were dead that is a person who potentially could have been served in the community and would have a higher quality of life but they will never be able to do that because our county governing body let them down let us all down let their family down and I cannot tolerate that anymore I think we deserve better and these people who are elected have promised to do a job, and they have promised to uphold very high expectations and meet our county's needs. And then they sit there and they have all these people bringing them these wonderful ideas, and they don't move the budget. And they don't direct the county's staff. They don't tell the leaders of the departments that this is what needs to be prioritized now. And we end up having bad outcomes. So you know, I I feel really fed up with it. So I would be 100% dedicated to Care First, Jail Last, and I would be 100% dedicated to ensuring that these plans are implemented after they're created.
0: So continuing on that thread, um, I'm happy to hear about concrete solutions, programs, grants the county can apply for, things that are already in existence, but simply need more support to work. Um, Because I know that Alameda County residents are looking for solutions right now. Um, And one model we haven't talked about yet, but I just wanna throw out there for listeners is um, Richmond in Contra Costa County has a very successful program related to violent crime, gun-related crime, that has allowed them to reduce their homicide rate dramatically. And so there's a there's a model, and, and it involves mentoring and stipends and a very um, pro-social model. So there are so many models that are out there, including locally, that we could take advantage of, um, but we currently don't. And so on this thread of solutions, I want to get into this. Um, I want to continue on this because you know, we've we, we have been talking about housing, we've been talking about mental health, we've been talking about the jail, and all of these issues intersect and also intersect with the issue of public safety, criminal justice, crime. And we know that Alameda County residents are looking for solutions right now. You know, the reality is, is that crime has increased for certain types of crimes in the last few years, particularly around property crimes. Um, I know this from personal experience myself. I'm an Oakland resident. I was the victim of a violent crime in Oakland in 2022. So I know that residents are looking for solutions and there's a lot of chatter about it, but we need real action. And the supervisors play a major role in this because as you mentioned at the very beginning, the board of supervisors are responsible for basically the entire the county's entire criminal justice system, excuse me, criminal justice system. Um, and one of those aspects is the sheriff. So I'd like to get into a question related to um related to the sheriff. So a little bit of context about that first so the board of supervisors is supposed to provide oversight of the sheriff basically has failed to do so voters have demanded change in 2022 the public voted to oust then gov then sheriff excuse me greg Ahern, and voted in a new sheriff yesenia sanchez who ran on a campaign to do things differently um So far, it seems like she's doing a lot of the same, but voters want change. And so they voted in a new sheriff in 2022. Relatedly, the county was prepared to spend about $85 million this year to expand Santa Rita Jail. And because of public opposition, they have scrapped that plan because the public wants them to use that money in a more efficient manner. And yet, despite all of this public opposition the board of supervisors has basically taken a hands-off approach to the sheriff um even though the board of supervisors is responsible for setting and overseeing the sheriff's budget which at this point is about half a billion dollars and i said billion with a b the alameda county sheriff's budget is around 500 million dollars So I want to get into a question regarding oversight of the sheriff, but I want to pause there for just a second if you have any reactions or anything you want to share so far to what I have shared.
1: Yeah, I think what you're sharing is incredibly accurate. And sometimes I like to say that the criminal legal system budget in this county, the whole thing, is typically allocated at $1 billion, which is 25% of our total budget, and when we get to the what's actually spent each year, it always exceeds a billion dollars. So we spend a billion dollars jailing people and arresting people, because that's the public defender, the DA, the juvenile probation and probation for adults as well, in addition to jail and the sheriff. It's a lot of money.
0: Around a billion dollars of the county's budget, about a quarter of the county's budget, is on these issues and about half of that going to the sheriff alone. It seems like there would be need for oversight of our tax dollars and I want to get into that because unfortunately it's something that Alameda County hasn't done yet. So a little bit of context. Back in 2021, the state of California passed a law called AB 1185, which allows counties to implement civilian oversight boards of county sheriffs. Um, It can look many different ways, but the idea being that you would have a civilian oversight body of your county sheriff, and they would have subpoena power, which is essential to allowing the body to have any teeth and being able to investigate and expose any misconduct by the local sheriff's department. Now, even though this law passed in 2021, Alameda County has not implemented a civilian oversight body. Um, It's actually on the agenda for a board meeting this week. And one of the issues or one of the points of tension that I'd like your view on, Jennifer, is that if, if the county implements a civilian oversight body over the sheriff, uh, members of the public are certainly in support of having independent counsel to actually implement this oversight body. The incumbent for District Four, Supervisor Miley, does not support independent oversight of the sheriff oversight body. He supports the county council having that role. County council is basically the county's the county's lawyers. So when the county gets sued, including when the sheriff gets sued, county council is the one defending. The county and so it seems strange to me that the entity that is defending the sheriff when the sheriff gets sued could also properly uh, hold the sheriff accountable as counsel of the oversight board so i'd like your thoughts on whether we should have a civilian oversight board of the county sheriff what that would look like and whether you support independent oversight counsel
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think that with the enabling legislation having passed three years ago at this point, it's been plenty enough time for us to have independent oversight. Yeah, it's a it's a half a billion dollar agency. But I think, aside from the financials, our jail is one of the deadliest in the country. At least 70 people have died in our jail in the last 10 years. And one of the things I intend to do as soon as I'm elected and sworn in is a series of audits because based on my expertise as a nurse if you are discharged from the emergency room of the hospital and you have a negative outcome which could be anything you could have uh, a new infection and have to come back to the emergency room worst case scenario you die that becomes a bad outcome that medical personnel and the hospital are held responsible for. That same standard is not basic within our county at the jail, and I want to change that. I want to know who has died after leaving our jail, and the reason this is important, and I think for the oversight body as well to take on, is because the information we've been getting is often incomplete, none at all, or you have to fight for it and the, the the jail will sometimes release someone while they're in the middle of being driven to the hospital in an ambulance. And then when they get to the hospital and are pronounced dead there, they are not considered someone who died in custody. So we really don't even know the true count. 70 is a low number compared to the number of people that have actually died in our jail. So yes, I support oversight. I support it being independent. I support having completely independent legal counsel separate from the county council. And I support having subpoena power. I think we probably need an office of inspector general, but right now we could appoint people in the community and we don't have to wait for a civil service process to hire the inspector general first. And that's what we keep seeing coming out of the incumbent and the body on the supervisors. Now they are delaying implementation. They are delaying oversight and all the while more and more of our community members are going into this jail and losing their life. And we cannot get straight answers from these people. So yes, we absolutely have to do that. And we have to implement this oversight immediately.
0: Regarding the jail audits, it's been an ongoing issue for the county that, yeah, the county has not been releasing information on a timely basis when people have died in custody. One of the other lawsuits that has cost taxpayers millions of dollars related to another death in the jail for a man named Maurice Monk, who was left dead in his cell for several days. And there... Information was not provided to his family on a timely basis regarding um, his situation, and so just pointing that out as an example for listeners regarding that issue. And I want to I want to tie these issues together, Jennifer, um, so that people are, are making the connection can understand how if we are able to improve all of these systems that it's going to make our community safer and i want to just give an example before i want to turn it over to you that's really practical Um, i'm a lawyer i do civil rights and criminal defense work the reality is is one part you've already mentioned right like if you have officers who have to spend their time responding to an issue of someone who's unhoused or someone who is having a mental health crisis or, or something like that, that's taking time away from, from them addressing other more pressing issues, and then that means that that person then is ending up in court, and so if one, if, if police had the option to divert people to other programs or to other services, that means that people can get their services at that point and free up police to do other work. And if we don't get at that point, and then if people end up in court, they got arrested, and then they end up in court, the reality is is that judges are people too, and they are just going to look at what the options are. If the option is, I can send this person to jail, or I can release them with no support whatsoever most of the time the judges are going to go with the jail option, even though the jail option is likely to make that person's situation worse and therefore less safe for all of us. So if a judge was able to say, Okay, instead, I'm going to refer you to this program, or I can divert you to this, or the district attorney, the prosecutor could say the same thing, then we can get people to services and support that is more effective and more timely. And then saving the deeper end stuff, police contact, arrest, jail for more serious matters. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yes. So many. Sorry, I had to unmute. Yes, I think that one of the issues we're seeing right now, even with this billion dollar budget for our criminal legal system, our collaborative courts are underfunded and understaffed, which means that if the judge wanted to offer that option to people, the public defenders are not able to even staff the courts. And that's problematic. Another thing that's also problematic is that the the diversion, excuse me, the diversion programs do not exist or they aren't robust enough to receive people. We've got twenty five thousand people going into the jail every year we have right now in custody. You talked about the the false notion of how many people are in the jails in custody between 1,700 and 2,000 people at any given moment. Half of those people have a mental health diagnosis. So. How many of those people at any given moment qualify to be diverted away for treatment? Probably about half of them. And I think we need to staff the diversion program. We need to make sure the diversion programs exist, are funded, are robust, you know, are coordinated well, but that has not been the priority. So yeah, I think that you're right. The judge is gonna do the thing that they think is gonna be helpful. The judge is not a mental health professional. The judge can only work with the resources at hand and our community has to provide. Our county has to design these systems and fund them and make them operational. The the reason you asked earlier about my expertise as a psych nurse, this is one of the places that my expertise is immense. Um, In addition to working in the psychiatric emergency room where I was always discharging people with resources or discharging them directly to a program, after leaving psych emergency i started working in the transitions division the on the placement team in the public health department in san francisco and all of my work has been moving people through levels of care into different treatment programs and different placements so i have a lot many many years of experience of working with programs and understanding what works well where the gaps are how Medi-Cal reimbursements uh, interface, how different staffing models work well. And I have a knowledge amongst these people and relationships as well. You know, just because I'm not a political person doesn't mean that I don't have experience and relationships navigating in these systems. And I think that there has been this unfortunate portrayal uh, that the incumbent has tried to create that says Jennifer doesn't know things because she's not political. And thank God I'm not political, but that does not mean I'm a novice. There is plenty of experience that is relevant to this work. And I actually believe that the political is problematic because everybody is trying really hard to make deals instead of making good outcomes. And as you mentioned, Maurice Monk, when his family went to get answers, All they wanted was answers they were told according to the coroner's report that maurice monk died of natural causes but when we see the body cam video that he was he died because of neglect he died because no one checked on him he died because instead of being given his medication his medication was thrown on the floor That is very different from the information that was given. So we absolutely need oversight. We absolutely need options. And we cannot continue to allow business as usual to be uh, what happens in this county. We need change. We need it imminently. It is urgent. I'm going to circle back to urgent. It's urgent.
0: I wanna just point out to listeners that you were mentioning about the coroner's report with this individual who died at Santa Rita Jail. The coroner is the sheriff. Um, In Alameda County, that's the same person. So just as an aside, the sheriff is also the coroner. Anyway, um, I wanna ask one more question before turning to a couple of other topics before we wrap up, but last question on this same topic. And this is really a big picture question. Um, because it seems like there, there's a lot of stake in this race beyond just the seat, beyond District 4 for the Alameda County Board of Supervisors. Um, with the uptick in crime that we have seen, there are a lot of forces that are pushing against the type of solutions that you are proposing. And. Um, We've talked about several of them already, but just to mention others, we are in a presidential election year and one of the candidates is very much on the, you know, lock them up and throw away the key vibe. There is an active uh, effort to recall the district attorney, Pamela Price, even though voters voted for her in 2022. Being led by the same people who led the recall effort of Chesu Boudin, the DA, former DA in San Francisco. That's not on the ballot um, yet, but that effort is on- ongoing. There's a negative mailer circulating referring to you and Pamela Price as quote unquote soft on crime. There are numerous public officials, including Supervisor Miley, that are now on this reform Proposition 47 train. Proposition 47 was a 2014 proposition passed by voters that reclassified um, various um, theft and drug related crimes from felonies to misdemeanors. And Supervisor Miley is one of the people that is pushing back on that now. Governor Newsom has uh, engaged on what he's calling a surge of police and prosecutors to the county, um, but not sending additional resources to the Public Defender's Office or to social services to deal with the, with crime. So there's a lot of momentum in this kind of lock-em-up approach, even though, as we've been discussing, it's what we've been doing forever, and it doesn't work, and it's not addressing the root causes of crime. And we're really leaving on the table so many solutions that do work by you know either not engaging at all or by underfunding them. So what's your take on all of that? How do you break through the noise um and um make the implement the stuff that actually works?
1: Yeah, I think the the question is sadly, I don't know why it's debatable, but the question is what actually works. Um I think you mentioned Richmond a little while ago. Richmond has reported its lowest murder rate in history except for one other year and what they say is beneficial to that is investing in a robust violence prevention program which included services and resources to community members that were most at risk that's what works we also have seen an uptick in crime in oakland where they removed funding from their violence prevention program and the center on juvenile and criminal justice released their study findings just a couple days ago a 30-year longitudinal study about police clearance rates and arrest and violent and property crimes and what they discovered is that the clearance rate and I'll explain the clearance rate means when a crime is reported how many are actually solved. So if 10 crimes are reported and the police solve five you would have a 50% clearance rate. Well, over the last 30 years, what they have shown is that in Alameda County, clearance rates have dropped and dropped and dropped, which means crimes are being solved less and less and less to the point of our current clearance rates in Alameda County being 5.8%. In Oakland specifically, Oakland police department's clearance rate is 1.5%. So that means we can't even say 10% crimes, you get one solved because that would be a 10% clearance rate. They're not getting to 10%. They're getting a 1 20th, <laughs> a, a 5% clearance rate in Alameda County. One out of every 20 crimes is solved and a one out of 100 of every crime in Oakland is solved. So the question then is, what are the police doing if they're not solving crimes? And I think that, unfortunately, Those statistics are not the thing that make people feel safe. Those statistics are not the things that make people feel scared. What makes people feel safe and what makes people feel scared depends on if someone's window has been broken or if their home has been broken into or if they have experienced violent crime or if someone in their family or friend circle or neighbor has experienced a burglary. And this uptick in crime is something that, you know, it's like, what are the police doing if these crimes are happening and they're not addressing them? I don't have the answer to that because that's not where I work. The work I do is in responding to social needs. And I think the majority of the work that the county does is also in responding to social needs. But let's just say, for instance, If 66% of the 911 calls are for social needs and the police are busy doing that, then we should give them the chance to go out and do their job and respond to violent crime and solve the crimes that have been reported. But that means that other resources have to be available so that the police can go off and do police work and train professionals, mental health professionals, social workers, can respond to issues around social needs. And I think, you know, people are like, but what are you going to do right now? That's what we actually have to do. I think that bringing in more law enforcement officers is offering a band-aid approach, a temporary solution to permanent issues. That's why we continue to see 25,000 arrests, 12,000 people spending less than seven days in jail. We have temporary issues. We have temporary solutions. I'm sorry, we have permanent issues and temporary solutions and people get fed through this revolving door. When I was in psych emergency, 50% of my people were repeat customers. We see the similar statistic in jail. 50% of those people are back out on the street. What we're doing is not working. We need to start investing differently. We need to build services differently. We need to respond to these issues differently. Let the police go do their job because right now they are not showing up for us.
0: I want to turn to one other key issue before getting to some more um, implementation and closing um, in the interest of time. So we've talked about um, public safety, we've talked about housing, we've talked about mental health, we've talked about social services. I want to talk a little bit about economic issues, which all of these things are related, but just to take out this slice and specifically around the Coliseum, which is an ongoing issue in Alameda County. So I want to give a little bit of background for listeners and then ask you a question to, help, to get your perspective on this issue. So why does the Coliseum matter to the Board of Supervisors and what does it have to do with this race? Well, in the Coliseum, um, located in Oakland, in 2019... The Board of Supervisors, led by Supervisor Nate Miley, sold Alameda County's half of the Coliseum to the A's. Prior to that, the Coliseum was equally owned by Oakland and Alameda County. Oakland still owns its half of the Coliseum, but Alameda County in 2019 sold its half of the Coliseum to the A's, uh, the baseball team. and. It was a controversial sale and it remains controversial, I would say because of two main issues. Um, One being that it wasn't a competitive bidding process and the county sold its share of the Coliseum for far less than it was actually worth. But I think what has been more important to Alameda County residents is the fact that that sale was not conditioned on the A's staying in Oakland. Alameda County residents have felt the effect of our various professional sports teams leaving and the A's. I mean, it's an ongoing thing of whether they're staying and all of this, but that sale of Alameda County's interests, which was done by the board of supervisors did not require the A's to stay in Oakland. And of the supervisors who voted for that sale there's only two that are still on the board of supervisors there's been a lot of change in the board of supervisors the last few years unfortunately a few board few supervisors have passed away there's been other changes and so the two remaining on the board of supervisors who voted for this sale are supervisor nate miley who is the incumbent for district four the race we've been discussing as well as supervisor keith carson who is the supervisor of district five but he is retiring So he is going to be leaving the Board of Supervisors, which just leaves Supervisor Miley, um, who chairs the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum Authority that oversees the Coliseum's operations. So we've got an ongoing issue with the Coliseum and the departure of professional sports teams from the county. Could you speak to what the consequences are of this sale of, you know, a public asset to a private owner? and what its impact has been on the county's economy and and on any of the other topics that we've discussed today.
1: Yeah, I, I'm glad that you brought the sale of the Coliseum. I think that you're exactly right. There was no competitive bidding process. We saw the sale without conditions. And in addition to not holding the A's team here, with a condition of the sale, we also did not mandate that the billionaire owner of the A's to whom the Coliseum was sold, there was no condition mandating community benefits. So there was nothing that said to this person, yes, we're gonna sell you this with no bid, no competitive bidding, and we're gonna make sure that should we decide to develop this land, you have to negotiate with us. And what we have seen is that the county has created a process where they actually have had an exclusive negotiating agreement with a local developer that wants to create housing on the site, and the billionaire owner of the As, Mark Fisher has refused to sit with us and negotiate. And to me, that is the hallmark of uh, ineptitude, of poor business dealings. Uh, it, you know, to me, I think, The fact that some political contributions have gone to the incumbent from the A's organization should not be ignored. That the county does not have a code of ethics by which you could say you violated the ethical principles, although that's a clear violation of principles. Whether you have a written code or not, it's problematic. So what we have lost is not just the A's, we lost the Raiders and we lost the Warriors. We have those Professional sports teams are gone, and we're trying to have a soccer team. We're trying to have a replacement baseball team, but the, the A's still hold um, the space. And because the A's owner is the owner of half of the interest in the ballpark, they also hold the power now to negotiate with us. So we lost community benefit. We lost community land that could have been used for some other purpose. And the way that the deal was discussed, publicly at least, when it was happening in 2019, it was as if this was the only option. The county was really trying to release a tax burden, really trying to release this burden of managing a sports uh, complex, and it was as if this was the only way. And I think that kind of uh, myopic view, tunnel vision, lack of uh, flexibility, is what brought us to this place today. So. In addition to all of that, when the governor announced that he was gonna bring the highway patrol to Oakland, 150 highway patrolmen, in his press release, he specified that he was coming to the area where the Coliseum is. And it's because in the news lately, you've heard stories about how we lost an In-N-Out burger and we lost a Denny's in that area because there's been so many car break-ins and because that area, um, as the incumbent likes to say, has been overrun with lawlessness. And I think that what we've actually experienced is a dropping of traffic because we used to have these teams playing at the Coliseum 30 days out of the month. We had sports, we had concerts, we had lots of different events going on and that has died away. So we have less people flying into our airport, which is probably good for our environment, but you know it's not good for the tax base. We have less people using local hotels. We have less people eating in local restaurants. We have less people moving up and down that area physically. So it's like a deserted area now, whereas once before it was very lively. And I think, I really don't know. We haven't seen a study to tell us how much revenue we lost, but I am certain that after losing the revenue from those three sports teams, We've lost many tens of millions of dollars without fail. So we have to have a completely different approach to how we navigate the management of uh, publicly owned land. And I feel like when we have public owned land, we have to use it for public good. It always has to have the public benefit first. And we can't be selling public land for one time money. We can develop it. We can lease it. We can do all kinds of things. But to sell it to a billionaire with no conditions feels like a very bad business move.
0: So yeah, it sounds like the lack of economic investment has led to crime and other bad outcomes. So thank you for that perspective on the Coliseum deal. All right, couple of final questions before getting into closing. We've discussed several of the key issues facing Alameda County residents and voters and your perspective on them. Uh, Let's say you win, hope you win. You will become one of five supervisors, as we discussed at the very beginning. How will you work with the other supervisors to get things done?
1: Yeah, this is a great question because I think this is one that is at the heart of of everybody's mind. You know, I'll work with them the way I work with everyone with open arms and with relationship building. But I think there's also, you know, clearly each supervisor has their own issues that they hold near and dear. And I will be bringing, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the untimely loss of a couple of our supervisors. Wilma Chan, may she rest in peace, was our progressive champion. She really was a person who tried to serve poor people and she tried to serve well. And she was focused on healthcare and she was focused on nutrition and so many other things. And I will try to fill that gap. But the person who is currently serving in that same district is Lena Tam. And I think that Supervisor Tam has been trying to uh, fill in a space for mental health care and for health care and she and I will have some points of interest that we can align on in that regard. She and I had a meeting a few months ago where we talked about St. Rose Hospital and my time on the Alameda Health System Board, and we talked about all the different ways that we could potentially work together. Um, I think similarly, we see Supervisor Hobart in the Tri-Valley is a real estate developer, and we absolutely need to house people, so I think he and I will have some common space where we can work together, related to housing, and also because this district includes Pleasanton, which is a part of the Tri Valley, he and I will have to work together because there are some issues that are unique to the Tri Valley area around open space, around a desire to develop land for solar purposes, and uh, the capping of uh, or the the pre-existing. Uh, oil wells that have been historically capped, but there's some environmental hazards there. I think that we can partner on some things. I think Elisa Marquez is the newest supervisor, and she's served in Hayward on the City Council before. She and I have also had conversations about St. Rose Hospital, and I think she's trying to figure out what her orientation is eventually going to be when it comes to public safety. She chairs the Public Protection Committee. I think she has a lot of desire to figure out how to make St. Rose a viable institution, whereas it's been bailed out by the county and state for many millions of dollars over many years. And I think that she and I have some places that we can also work together. And she's also very interested in housing development. Hayward has built hundreds of units of housing in the last 10 years, and while she was serving on the city council. So I think there are a lot of spaces where I can work with the supervisors who are there but in addition to that even before you ever get to a vote, supervisors get to direct staff. The the agency directors serve at the pleasure of the appointing authority and the appointing authority are the board. So when there's discussion about like what plans are we going to implement? What is the overarching plan and strategy for these agencies like the the, uh, mental health in the community, I can work with Dr. Tribble, we can talk about priorities, and we can shift from forensic to community-based. And the same thing goes for the other agencies and departments. We can work together to figure out where the needs are. But, you know, I think all that being said, winning this race will be a clear signal and a referendum on what this county needs. The people will speak loud and clear when they unseat an incumbent and bring in someone who was a political outsider, who was a registered nurse, who has said time and again that the intention is to heal the community, to provide services and care, and to shift from what we've been doing into something new. So I think that will also be a clear signal to every supervisor who is currently in their role that the people of this county want change. And that is gonna be a motivating factor.
0: So on the point of voters, you know, making a statement with this election, I wanna ask, is this a winnable race? You know, I think that sometimes voters want to feel like they're on the winning side Which is, it's a strange position because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, if they think the person's going to win, then they vote for them, so they win. If they don't think the person's going to win, they don't vote for them, so the person doesn't win. Um, But, you know, let's just, let's talk reality. You are up against an incumbent, a 24-year incumbent. Um, I know that you've run for office before, recently, state assembly, narrowly losing, I think, by about 1% of the vote. You've received lots of endorsements. Um, So talk to us. Like, Is this race winnable and why?
1: Thank you. Yes, absolutely. This race is winnable. It's winnable because that race that I ran recently for California State Assembly, I think I proved to people that I was a formidable organizer and fundraiser and that people in the community wanted change. There was, you know, I was severely outspent, it ended up being the fourth most expensive race in California. And it was about $4 million that were spent to keep me out of that seat. And I still only lost by 1%. So learning from all of that, you know, as someone who has never been in public office, they say you have to run in order to run successfully. The, the lessons I learned were uh, priceless. And this uh, campaign is being run with all of the information that I have taken with me from that previous run, but also the community is so strong and the community is so motivated. And I mean, the amount of people who spent their time postcarding to other voters, sitting down at the the library, at a restaurant, in their own living room with groups of people, we sent 10,000 postcards because in the last four weeks, because people wanted to other people in the community to know how much they trust my leadership. I think that this is a different kind of moment. You know, last election cycle, even though I didn't win, we saw a huge shift in Alameda County. We saw the victories at the ballot box. We got a woman of color mayor in Oakland, a woman of color DA A woman of color uh, in the state assembly, a woman of color in the state Senate, and a woman of color sheriff. The people have spoken, and I think they are speaking still. They want change. They ousted the sheriff, as you said. They, you know, I I am just here for the folks in this county. And when I talk to them at the doors and I share with them that I'm running, that I'm a nurse, they love it. And then when I share with them that the person in the seat has been there for 24 years, the majority of them say, you can stop talking right now. It's time for change. Enough already. So it's huge to have this opportunity in this moment when people are fed up with the way things are, they do not want the status quo. So, you know, I really believe that the time is now and that we have, my team and I have run a strong campaign. And that people are demanding change and here we are
0: thank you Jennifer I'm gonna move into closing now we've been talking for a while thank you so much for all your insight into all of these issues to help our voters be more informed I want to let listeners know that there are two upcoming candidate forums So if you would like to hear more from Jennifer, if you would like to hear more from both candidates, um, there is a forum coming up on February 25th in just a few days. That is going to be at Skyline Church in Oakland from 5 to 6.30 p.m. There are both in-person and Zoom options to participate. Again, that is February 25th at Skyline Church in Oakland from 5 to 6.30 p.m. And then on February 29th, there is a virtual forum, so only an online option, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. that is being hosted by Oakland Rising and Restore Oakland. Again, that is a virtual forum, candidate forum, on February 29th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. hosted by Oakland Rising and Restore Oakland. Now, if folks, in addition to those two forums, if folks want to learn more about you or support your campaign, where should they go?
1: People are absolutely welcome to learn more and to support the campaign. I'm on, my website is jenniferesteen.com. That's Jennifer with two N's, one F, esteen.com. And my social media handles are all the same. It's esteen, the number four, C A. I would love to have you join me. Reach out, email me. I'm at jennifer at jennifer um, Hit me with your questions. Volunteer with us, we're phone banking. Election day is March 5th, so we are literally f- two weeks away. This is the end of Monday. Tuesday is election day in two weeks. So we're two weeks away. We need all the help we can get. If you are someone who enjoys phone banking, join us on Thursday. If you like to canvass and talk to voters, join us on the weekend. Next week, I will be canvassing every single day, starting Saturday, through the week and into election day. Um, I'd love to have you with me. Thank you so much for this, Natasha.
0: Absolutely. Any final words to share with voters?
1: I'm thrilled, and let's go. We can win.
0: Okay. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Jennifer Esteen, for being here with us and giving us insight into your candidacy. And with that, to all of the listeners, thanks everybody for listening and see you next time.